This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash! Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies' splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. The Ringer MLB show is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. Plus, there are more ways to fund your account. Unlike other sportsbook, FanDuel accepts most major payment options. Check out the FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. 21 and over and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer staff writer and best-selling author Ben Mr. Chalk Lindbergh. Ben, how you doing? Hi, fellas. Doing all right. So I want to start to get into our opening topic by way of a question. Last night we saw Araldus Chapman throw, as Araldus Chapman does, a very fast fastball. Uh, what made this one special is it buzzed the head of Rays hitter Mike Brasso. Uh, obviously, we like to see emotions expressed on the baseball diamond, but this is not an optimal way to do it because you could be seriously hurt or even killed by a pitched baseball. And so what I've been trying to, to think about is a way for pitchers to express that emotion in a healthy manner. One that what So my question to you, and we'll start with Zach, is this. What can a pitcher throw at a batter that can signify that level of disgust without putting the, the batter in harm's way? My answer is a water balloon. I think if a pitcher wants to send a message and hit someone, he should tell the umpire. They pull out a water balloon from the dugout and you throw it at him from 60 feet away. You get the benefit of hitting him. You get to actually see an explosion, which you don't with a normal fastball, unless I guess you're Randy Johnson hitting a bird. Uh, and then the other benefit is you actually bite bother the other team even more because then the batter has to run around in wet socks and there's nothing worse than having to run around with wet socks. That's my answer. Is there a strategic element to this? You think you might throw it at batters who you might consider to be threats to steal bases? I'm imagining someone like, you know, do you slow Whit Merrifield down by by soaking him? I think anything that that adds more strategery to baseball is a perfect idea. That's what they used to call when you had to throw at a runner to get them out in early baseball. I think they called it soaking the soaking, runner. Yes. Now it would have a new meaning. Ben, what's uh, what's your contribution to baseball safety? 
I think the pitcher should throw a handkerchief just to start like an old <laughs> old school duel. And then the, the pitcher and the batter can just have it out right then and there. I don't want anyone to get hurt. So it would have to be maybe a, a rap battle or some kind of dance competition. I don't know whatever needs to happen to settle the beef between those two so that it doesn't have to infect the entire team for months and months. I like that too. It's very, I know Bobby brought up in our, our meeting before the show, uh, the, the biting your thumb, the Shakespearean element of biting your thumb at somebody. I think that really mm-hmm. captures, uh, that. So my answer is, is I think somewhat similar to Zach's in that, uh, it's predicated on an explosion. I would like to have a pitcher throw a melon at a batter. So I don't know if, a, if a watermelon is too, too big and cumbersome, but you know, these are big, strong guys. These pitchers, they have big hands. They could chuck a honeydew or a cantaloupe or something of that nature, uh, 60 feet. What I like about this is not just the explosion, but I don't know if you guys have ever thrown a fruit, a large fruit off of a a structure, but I have, and (laughs) there's no dignified way to do it. You have to do it's, it involves whether you go overhand, you go underhand, you do the, like the two handed, like pumpkin chunkin thing. Uh, I guess a pumpkin would actually work for this too, but it involves some dignified, uh, undignified motion. And I think if you're going to get the ass to the point where you're going to throw stuff at a batter, you have to have the ass so bad that you're willing to look like an absolute idiot uh, to express that level of anger. So that, that really has an appeal to me. And that might diffuse the situation immediately, right? Because you you immediately look just so uh, embarrassed that you're no longer angry and you've shamed yourself in the process of doing that. And in the meantime, probably tempers have subsided and maybe everyone can just laugh about it. I disagree, actually. I think that there's a <laughs> there's there's some baseball players who uh, we get these beanball incidents or, or mound charging or, or uh, benches clearing things where it's just momentary outbursts of anger where... Uh, where taking that that moment to pause would stop would would just that that second split second where you have to go reach into the cooler behind the mound for the water balloon or or call to the dugout for the ceremonial honeydew something like that might diffuse the situation but I actually think that there's a level of machismo here where you can't where some of these guys think you really can't back down so like if the the follow up to to throwing the handkerchief is you have to get on the American gladiator style joust and like they're getting fitted for the headgear and the pugil sticks and and um like that whole process of getting suit, suited up they'd just be shouting at each other the entire time I think that you'd get some guys who would be willing to fight no matter how long it took and how silly they looked. Mike has been acting out the jousting and the melon throwing throughout this conversation. So those of you who are (laughs) not seeing the video are really missing out on (laughs) one aspect of this. I just like that this introduction bit has transformed from a way to talk about the Rays and Yankees to a way for Mike to relive his glory days of throwing melons off of structures, which (laughs) I want to learn more about, but maybe after the We'll do that off air. I don't know what the statute of limitations is for for some of these melon throwing incidents. Um, Okay, so let's get back to the the Rays and Yankees. Um, I think that we all find it interesting that the Rays are in first place right now, which I think some of this beef probably has to do with big brother, little brother syndrome. Uh, but these two teams have been, been at each other's throats, uh, for, I would say at least, uh, the past season and a half, two years, uh, dating back to the CC Sabathia, Jesus Sucre incident of 2018, where, uh, CC, uh, got 
ejected just short of his innings limit and shouted what I think we would all consider normal workplace banter at the the Rays dugout. So, um, Zach, why don't you like what what is the is this is not just a spontaneous instance of Araldus Chapman losing it? No, and I think there is potential danger on Wednesday night. Uh, we are recording this Wednesday morning, so who knows what will happen by the time people listen to this pod. But after the game, Rays manager Kevin Cash uh, expressed his frustration with what happened in yesterday's game, in addition to Chapman almost hitting uh, a ray in the head. Uh, Joey Wendell was hit by Masahiro Tanaka in the first inning and seemed to think it was intentional. So Kevin Cash, after the game, said, I have a whole stable of guys that throw 98 miles an hour, period. Then Yankees reporters asked the Yankees about that quote. DJ LeMahieu said, it sounds like they're going to try to throw at us tomorrow. We'll be ready. Uh, so I'm not really sure what could happen tonight, but there's some danger here. And I think part of it is that the Rays are in first place, and these are clearly the two best teams in the AL East and have been dating back a year now. Also, they've just played a lot of close games, extra inning games. There were some walk-off home runs last year between these teams. And I think it's you know kind of the the vacated spot that the Red Sox have left where the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry isn't much of a rivalry right now. The Yankees have won 10 games in a row versus Boston, 15 of the last 16. And I guess the Yankees have to have a rival if they're going to be good and the Rays are the next best pick here. And the Yankees do have the highest average fastball velocity in the American League, so it's tough to go fastball for fastball. We going to bring numbers. <laughs> yeah, the Rays are second, though. So if any team can keep up with them, I guess it would be Tampa Bay. I think it's so easy for stuff like this to start. All it takes is one errant fastball, which might be intentional or might be unintentional, and whether or not. It's intentional. The batter's never going to be happy about it. You never like getting buzzed by a fastball, even if you think it's an accident. And so in that situation with tempers and tensions running high and with this rivalry between these two teams with the high stakes that go along with their games and, you know, you get maybe one hot headed batter who takes offense at something and then the other team is honor bound to retaliate and then it's a whole thing. And then it transcends a single game. And this started maybe in September 2018 with the Sabathia incident with these two teams. But then it flared up again last month and now it's back again. And these things can linger for months or years at a time. And it can just start with one fastball. And I don't know that there's any way around that. You know, we talked recently about whether the Fernando Tatis unwritten rules incident would be a watershed when it comes to just kind of lowering tensions around unwritten rules in general. But I think that sort of unwritten rule, the the trying too hard in a lopsided game, that's different from beanball wars, which are really never going to go away unless MLB just cracks down so harshly on any possible beanball that you get really lengthy suspensions that disincentivize anyone from throwing anyone anywhere near a batter. But accidents are going to happen because pitchers don't have pinpoint control. And so there's no way around close encounters and there's no way around batters getting upset about it and their teammates being forced to retaliate. Yeah, this is this is not an unwritten rules thing. This is just we've seen. I don't know if we're actually seeing more of these uh, tempers flaring incidents this season than uh, the normal or or if it just looks that way to me and I'm com- you know, completely off base with this. But it just there are times when it feels like a couple guys on a couple teams just aren't getting enough fiber in their diet. <laughs> and 
this is just going to happen. I think, you know, I, I like that. I've said this over and over. I'm sure I'm going to repeat myself again, but I like that we're seeing these players like, you know, these games matter this much to, to players that they're just operating on the, the cusp of, of emotional insolvency. And I think that's a very cool uh, place for the, the sport to be as much as I would like, you know, Kevin, Kevin cash to uh, keep his stable full of guys who throw 98 somewhere closer to the strike zone. Yeah, and I like a little bit of bad blood between teams as long as it doesn't translate into violence and players being endangered. Like if there's trash talk, if there's just some amount of unfriendliness, if there's some bitterness on both sides, that's fine. I think that maybe enhances things even from a spectator standpoint. If you feel like the players actually are are kind of out to beat each other, not just because of the standings, but because they just don't like each other a whole lot, which I think generally players get along and fans are the ones who are getting most upset about things and are really the ones kind of lobbing bombs at other fan bases. But there are times when these tensions rise and things boil over. And as a fan, that can be kind of fun, except that then it takes it too far and it turns into people getting endangered. And whether Chapman's pitch was intentional or not, it was extremely scary to see. It could have gone much worse than it did. So you never like to see things get to that point. And I'll I'll say this. I think if there was more trash talk, we'd have less throwing at batters because baseball's got this sort of backwards way of operation where you can only fight after that statement of intent. Like the 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 handkerchief that you mentioned, Ben, like the a, a lot of times throwing it at, at a hitter uh, serves as that first salvo. Like, oh, it's OK to to yell at each other, to push and shove a little bit because we've had somebody thrown at It's yeah, Why not just start yelling whatever you get upset. I feel like that would be a much more efficient way to to have this emotional release and probably um, eliminate a little bit of the danger in the game. Yeah, don't bottle it all up inside. <laughs> Let it all out. It'll be <laughs> cathartic for you. Yeah, uh, so I was, you know, we talked about the history of beef between the, uh, the Rays and the Yankees, and I did a little bit of research uh, before the show. Did you guys know that uh, every domesticated cow on the planet, 1.3 billion of them, can be traced to one herd of about 80 cows in Iran in about 10, 11,000 years ago. <laughs> That's, That's your beef knowledge. research? That is, my, that? that is the history of beef. I found that just really fascinating point where I felt like I had to share it. Um, so, Zach, you mentioned that the Yankees are <laughs> sort of like a bad guy in search of an antagonist. Uh the rivalry with the Red Sox is not what it was a couple years ago. We saw a little bit of this on the internet yesterday as uh, the Red Sox uh, Twitter account posted a an image of them hitting the reset button with a, a phrase that, or with an acronym that I needed to go to Craig Goldstein, of all people, from baseball perspectives to have explained to me. But it means, if you know, you know, which... I guess is justifying them selling at the at the deadline after selling Mookie Betts and David Price and ending up in the in the basement. Um, you know, I guess this sort of this could go into the the trade deadline segment. It's just it's nice that the Rays are, are sort of stepping up into that anti Yankees role, but it's this should be the Red Sox. I just want to congratulate the Red Sox because it appeared from. All the way back uh, before the season began over the winter when they traded Mookie Betts that their main goal for this season 
was to reset the luxury tax and not actually win games, and they've achieved their goal. So congratulations. Congratulations to the Red Sox fans who get to watch their last place. And I think last place even undersells how disappointing this Red Sox season has been. Their starting pitchers as a group have an ERA of 6.91 right now. Uh, so congratulations, nice. because that's what they wanted. Yeah, Ben, you I, you made a, a big deal when we were doing our preseason predictions, and not just in that you didn't want to do preseason predictions, but you <laughs> didn't pick the the Red Sox to be your flop team because you thought everyone expected them to be bad. Mm-hmm. Does this count as a flop based yes. on preseason <laughs> expectations? Yes, they have failed to meet even the bar that was very low when the season started. I just thought, you know, they traded Mookie Betts. They traded their best player. Chris Sale was hurt. No one was expecting that much out of them, and yet they have not even come close to those even lowered expectations. So, yes, you were justified in calling them a flop team, and you've been proven right. Thank you. That's all I wanted to hear. (laughs) All right, let's move on to the trade deadline uh, where the Red Sox were sellers insofar as they had stuff to sell. I guess Kevin Pillar and a couple of bullpen pieces count. Uh, But the big movers are the San Diego Padres and to the point where I rewrote podcast classic. What did Jerry DePoto do to, to the uh, new lyrics? What did AJ Preller do? So <laughs> what did AJ Preller do? What did AJ Preller do? He's bringing every single catcher to San Diego. What did AJ Preller do? H.J. Preller made a lot of trades with Jerry DePoto. Made a lot of trades. Yes, he did. <laughs> and like, it, and in my write up, I said like something like you can't, let these two talk to each other or else <laughs> something weird is going to happen. And sure enough, seven player trade uh, revolving around air or damn it. I did it again. <laughs> I got through the entire column uh, trying not to call Austin Nola, Aaron Nola. And I get to the podcast and I screw it up. Um, one of the Nola brothers, the Nola brother who is not a pitcher and also not Alex Bregman got traded from Seattle to, to San Diego. Uh, due to the machinations of of AJ Preller and Jerry Depoto, among Mike Clevenger and numerous other players. Yeah, in my write up for theringer.com, I just added up all the players that Preller traded for or traded away, and it comes out to 26 players in a three day spin if you include the players to be named later. And that's a record that has never happened before. No other GM has exchanged that many players in that amount of time. And the only one who has come close in the past is A.J. Preller, who traded 24 players in a three-day span in 2014. So he's done this before, and he is sort of singular, I think, among major league executives these days in that he's probably uniquely aggressive, and he will make the types of moves and the quantity of moves that most other teams just won't make. And Sometimes he takes it too far and he gets suspended repeatedly by Major League Baseball, which is not great. But when it's on the level, at least, it's pretty fun and refreshing to see him operate. And obviously, the circumstances are totally different now from what they were in 2014 when he tried to rebuild that team on the fly and just sort of skip the rebuilding phase and and go right to being good after being bad for years Turns out you can't really do that, and he didn't pull that well, off. He, they they made kind of an ill-advised signing of James Shields and then flipped him for yeah, Fernando Tatis Jr. So yeah, <laughs> on a on a long enough timeline, the, the <laughs> right. arc of the universe bends back toward AJ Preller. 
But this time, of course, he has gone through that long, painstaking process of stockpiling prospects and turning the Padres into a legitimate contender. And this was just putting the finishing touches on a team that was already good. And now he was trading off some of the surplus prospects that that team has accumulated over the past several years. They just had a number of positions, really, where they had redundant players because they just had so much talent that you couldn't even find playing time for these guys. And so they shipped some of those players off. They remade their whole catching core on the fly at midseason, which is pretty daring. They acquired the best player to change teams at the deadline, Clevenger. They acquired about half of the Mariners' bullpen. They really remade themselves, and now I think not only do they have the best record of any non-Dodgers team in the NL, but according to Dan Samborski of Fangraphs, they project to be the second-best NL team in 2021. So these were some rentals and short-term-oriented moves, but also some that should help them in the long run. Yeah, and I think what's most remarkable about the Padres' moves at the deadline is they didn't squander any of their top players, either at the major or minor league level. You know, obviously, they weren't going to trade somebody like Tatis, but they didn't lose any core contributors from the current roster that's propelled them to the second best record in the league, and they retained all of their top prospects. I think Taylor Trammell, who went to Seattle in the NOLA deal, was the best player that they traded, but he also has underperformed in the minor leagues. He had only been at San Diego for a year after coming uh, at the 2019 deadline. So it's not like they're really sacrificing that much long-term value. They also still have one of the best farm systems in baseball. And I think the Clevenger deal is really interesting. Ben, I know back in the day, you used to write a column where you would scour the internet for the worst <laughs> trade proposals from each team. And I think a common a common example in that genre is when like Giancarlo Stanton was available for the Marlins uh, like a decade ago and people in comment sections online would say, well, if we traded the Marlins, our seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th and 11th best prospects, they would have to go for it. Right. And of course, those trades never actually happen because you need premium talent for premium talent in return. But that's kind of what Cleveland got here. Right. They got a bunch of guys none of whom I'm confident are going to be average major league players. And Cleveland has a very good player development system, especially on the pitching side. So maybe somebody like Cal Quantrill uh, will become a good major leaguer. But like Cleveland needs outfield help right now. And I'm not sure if Josh Naylor is the guy to step in and do that. He might be the guy to step in and give them first base help. But that's sort of the problem that he had breaking into the lineup in San Diego. So I'll say this about about that being just a, a quantity over quality trade. You look at those players, that the six players they gave up, every single one of them has upside. They're all either in terms of being young minor or young major leaguers or prospects. You can see the appeal. You could see a team that's as good at player at player development as Cleveland turning every single one of them into uh, solid big league contributors. Even somebody like Austin Hedges, who is probably overextended playing in the you know, being in the starting lineup every single day is a very good defensive catcher is, is a useful big leaguer and will be for many years to come. And Quantrill, again, I tweeted about this the instant that trade dropped. Like two years from now, he's going to be throwing 114 miles an hour and winning the Cy Young, just the way Cleveland develops uh, pitchers. But those are, depending on on how you ask or who you ask, they were like Cleveland's 12th, 16th, 20th, and 30th best prospects. But this is a system, and this is where those internet trades, those message board trades, or wherever young people are going to put 
weird fake trades on the internet nowadays, uh, where they trip up is they assume that the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth best prospects in every system are equivalent. So, like they say, oh, if the Yankees are going to offer prospects seven, eight, and nine, then it's the same if the Angels offer uh, prospects seven, eight, and nine. It's not true. This is a system where Taylor Trammell is the fifth best prospect left after they've graduated Paddock, after they've graduated uh, Tatis. And so they had that depth to deal from. And as much as ever, you look at maybe not every single player they let go, but most of them uh, are solid prospects or solid young big leaguers with potential with lots of team control. There, you can see the appeal for the the teams that they're trading, but there's just no path, no path to to big league playing time um, with the Padres. And you saw that they booted Luis Arias, who I think was uh, it's he didn't perform in his first couple call-ups with the the Padres, but he's a guy who I think it was still way too early to give up on him. And you look at the content of that that trade with Milwaukee over the offseason, maybe it's unfair to say that San Diego gave up on him, but they just accumulated so many valuable players. They don't have enough room for them in, on the big league roster. They didn't in a couple, and Eric Longenhagen wrote about this uh, at Fangraphs heading up toward the, the deadline. They didn't have enough room for some of those guys on the 40 man. And so what they've done is consolidated four okay players into two or three good players. And in a couple places, you know, Mitch Moreland is not going to be a long-term block to um, some of their young hitters getting in the lineup. You know, he's, exactly what he's uh, being brought in there to, to do, which is be a stopgap until Tommy Pham's uh, hand heals. So it's, you just, it's, it's very clever roster construction. I don't want to go overboard and be like, Oh, the Padres are, are, are the coolest team in baseball. Although I think that they, they are the most exciting team from a, both a strategic and tactical perspective, but it's a very clever, uh, AJ Prowler has been very clever over the past 12 months in, in consolidating all of the, the value that he had in the talent in that, you know, coming up through the upper levels of the minors and turning them into fewer, better players that he can actually roster and play at the same time. It must be frustrating for fans of Cleveland to see Clevenger go while Cleveland is right in the thick of contention in the AL Central. This is obviously the latest in a series of high-profile trades that Cleveland has made, whether it's Kluber, Bauer, or Clevenger, or rumors about flirting with trades for Lindor. Clearly, this franchise had a championship core and came close to a championship and had another couple runs at it. And instead of building on the talent that they had, they've just sort of been stripping it away or sort of treading water, trying to have it both ways. They're kind of trying to do the, the Tampa Bay balancing act where they're good now, but they're also kind of keeping an eye on the future at all times. And so instead of going all in like the Padres just did, Cleveland is sort of saying, well, we've developed this really strong rotation, even without Clevenger. We still have Bieber. We still have Plesak. We still have Savali. We still have McKenzie. We still have Carrasco. I mean, these guys do just keep coming. And so they're planning ahead now because this ownership group has decided that it can't or won't spend more on this team. And you'd really like to see club keeping its its homegrown guys and building around them instead of just trying to rob the strengths to shore up future weaknesses. But this is the way that they're committed to operating, it seems. So they're making the best of that. And I think we saw at least more deals than I expected at the trade deadline. But 
Most of them were pretty low impact moves, depth relievers, platoon bats. Uh, so Clevenger, I think, stands out because he's the one top level player who I think moved, whereas all the other ones rumored to go, whether Lance Lynn and Joey Gallo from the Rangers or someone like Dylan Bundy, who's now pitching like an ace with the Angels, they all stayed put. So Clevenger is the one impact player who moved, of course, you know, watch Jose Martinez hit a game-winning double in the NLDS or something for the Cubs now. But for the most part, this was a deadline heavy on activity, but light on players who maybe the the average fan would understand to be important who moved. I as as frustrating as that is, as much as part of the reason that I'm so excited about the Padres is trades are fun. Uh, as much as I like trades. I understand the logic for why you wouldn't make a, a big kind of move because there's never been more uncertainty. So a lot of the the so there's the the 16 team playoff uh, structure for this season, which we're going to talk to or talk about in a little more depth in, in just a second, which reduces the incentive for you would think a team like the Padres to go make the extra move to to uh, jump out of the four seed and maybe try to chase down the the Dodgers because the incentives aren't aren't really there. Uh, it reduces the the sellers. There's never been greater economic uncertainty. There's never been greater player development uncertainty. There's never been greater scouting uncertainty. Not only are a lot of these teams furloughing or laying off wholesale pro scouting departments, but you look at the Brandon Workman types or the Andrew Chafins or guys like that who get moved uh, as as a, a, a supporting piece at the deadline, the players who come, and this is the reason that we see a lot of players be named later at this deadline, maybe more than usual, is that when buying teams are, or, sorry, when selling teams are asking who they want back, a lot of times it's based on scouting looks at complex ball or in the low minors, uh, which aren't being played this year. And even the, the, uh, the alternate site camps, not all of them are being televised. The, the, the data sharing is not what, what it would be. So, you can't send your scout there and see, oh, this kid has had a velo jump. Let's go target him, you know, on an Orioles backfield in May. That kind of information's not not getting out there anymore. So for all of those reasons, I would have expected uh and I, I think to a large extent we saw a very cautious deadline. Yeah. And you know, Saris had a breakdown at the athletic that backs up what Zach was just saying that this was the second busiest deadline in the last 10 in terms of just the sheer number of players traded. But as Zach was saying, not a lot of high-profile impact players. And this was the first year in the last five when there was really no very highly rated prospect changing teams. And I think it's for all the reasons that you mentioned and that Zach wrote about in an article for The Ringer last week. But also, it's just that it's such a short season. There's a month left to go in the regular season. And so if you're trading for a rental, you're just not getting as much playing time out of that player as you would in a normal season. And then you have the expanded playoff format. And for some teams, at least, the path to the World Series is even longer and harder than it would be with a 10-team playoff format. So... I agree that uh, I was sort of surprised that it was as active as it was, but a lot of those moves were sort of sort of superficial. And that's not to say that none of these moves will matter or aren't important under the radar. I look at someone like Tommy Lastella, who moved from the Angels to Oakland, as a really great under-the-radar signing. He has a 122 OPS plus over the last two years. That means he's been 22% better than average at the plate. He's a left-handed hitter in a lineup that skews pretty right other than Matt Olson, and they had a hole at second base, and he helps fill that. 
that doesn't mean that he's going to put Oakland over the top, but that's a nice addition that fills the one hole Oakland had. And I think there were other moves like that at the deadline, but it's not like any average fan is going to think, oh, Tommy Listella, the pennant race is different now. Well, uh, that is the one the one move I was going to single out that I really liked is as sort of plugging that hole. It, you know, he can hit, he can play all over the diamond, but he's not so good that they can't take him out for defensive purposes at the end of the game, which I think sort of makes him an ideal member of the Oakland A's. And it, Franklin Barreto going the other way, um, you know, talk about um, uh, guys needing playing time. I, you know, I I don't mind that as a as a pickup for the Angels. You know, maybe he's somebody who can discover that potential that he showed. This is this was not too long ago. He was the centerpiece of the Josh Donaldson trade and just hasn't been able to break the lineup in Oakland. So we'll see if if they find a place for him. Another team I want to single out for. Um, uh, for buying at the deadline is the Toronto Blue Jays, who I've been sort of rooting for to be good this year. And they're in a position where they're now closer to the Yankees and the Yankees are to first place. Uh, even with Nate Pearson and Bo Bichette uh, having struggled through injuries this year, they went out and got three starting pitchers at the, um, at the deadline. And so, and they're, the Pirates did this, it seems like, every year in the first part of the last decade where they went out and got guys who might be able to help and didn't really give up a lot to do it. So they kept it, it just like we were talking about with the Padres. They didn't go and overpay for uh, somebody who wasn't that good. You know, Ross Stripling has playoff rotation potential. Robbie Ray has showed that over the uh, the past few years, even if he's not showing it right now. These are these are all players who uh, I think can really help them in the in the short term. Even and I I just like that that they've struggled and they're going for it, that they've had so little recent playoff success, that two-year run in the the Tulo era, uh, sort of notwithstanding. Um, they're in there with the the Padres, where team, in, in teams that uh, I think really need to show their fans something, and I think they're really doing that at the, at the deadline. Yeah, I was going to say they're almost the AL equivalent of the Padres in that they're coming off this period of sustained yeah. sucking, more or less, and they're coming out of it, and they've got this great young lineup of exciting position players, and things are looking brighter for the first time in a while. And I think these were the two teams that, just based on the odds, benefited the most from the expansion in the playoff format. Not that the Padres have actually needed that because they've played so well that they'd be in playoff position regardless, but these were the two teams that seemed like they might sort of be on the bubble there and would get a boost from the increase in playoff teams. And they've both played well and played in an exciting fashion. And, and the Jays remade their rotation over the offseason because they just had to use so many different pitchers to make starts last year. And of course, they went out and got Hyunjin Ryu, who's been very good for them. But then they remade their rotation again just at midseason with Russ Stripling and Robbie Ray and Taiwan Walker. They also picked up Jonathan VR to replace Bichette for the time being. So they were pretty aggressive, too. And this is a team that was sort of famous or infamous for talking about years of control and talking about winning the trade deadline because they picked up the most wins uh, or the most years of future control. And now they're just going for it. And that's a lot more fun. You mentioned expansion. I think that is the right word to use for a team that already had Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Rowdy Tellez. <laughs> and it, it spent the last week before the deadline Picking up Taiwan Walker and Dan Vogelbach. These are no longer the Toronto Blue Jays. These are the Buffalo Big Boys. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Real quick before we move on, the Diamondbacks were a notable seller, and there was some uh, some frustration within the team that Mike Hazen seemed to be 
uh, giving up on this season. At least, you know, I the the actual comments might be interpreted as a little more ambiguous than that. But they sold off Donatus, Robbie Ray, and Chafin, but Starling Marte and and uh, Archie Bradley. These are not players on the level of of somebody like Mike Clevenger, but these are fairly big names as, as the Diamondbacks go. And so, it, you know, we talked about uh, their up and down season in terms of of contention. They've been through it just in the past couple of weeks, but it's it's striking the amount that they sold off at this point in time. They, they this deadline was almost as aggressive as San Diego's in in its own way. They've certainly been jumped in the NL West pecking order by the Padres and even. Uh, the chaos giants now chaos and, giants. <laughs> and I think challenging in a challenging calls in the seventh inning of a 16 run game, <laughs> never a dull moment with San Francisco. I think they have just had across the board guys take step backs where they didn't ex- expect. So someone like Robbie Ray, who had a walk per inning in Arizona before being traded or Luke Weaver and Madison Bumgarner both have ERAs around nine. And I think Bumgarner is the big bummer here where they signed him. And I think I was fairly critical of that signing just because looking at some of Bumgarner's underlying numbers, he didn't seem like the kind of pitcher he was back in 2015. And he has had some injury issues, but he also just wasn't throwing the ball very fast and was ineffective in the time he was on the mound. And I think he just kind of symbolizes the direction the team has gone this year where they entered with hope Uh, They thought they could take a step forward and everyone took a step back. They still have a good farm system. They drafted a bunch of guys near the top uh, of last year's draft. So as they matriculate up through the system, the Diamondbacks won't go away. But I think if if trading Zach Greinke at last year's deadline signaled sort of the start of the rebuild, then they stayed afloat for longer than some people might have thought. But here's the come down. Yeah, it's been hard to figure them out because they've made a lot of moves that sort of signal selling, but then they've also made buying type moves. And when they traded Goldschmidt, the players they got back immediately were as good or or better than Goldschmidt. So they kept contending. They traded Granke, but then they signed Madison Bumgarner. They traded for Starling Marte, and now they've traded away Starling Marte to the Miami Marlins, who, as if 2020 wasn't weird enough, are now trade deadline buyers. So it's been sort of hard to figure out their direction. They've been sort of rebuilding on the fly while continuing to contend, which is great if you can do it. And they've had some player development successes that have helped them in that process. But now... I don't know what the long-term outlook is for them because even though they do have talent and they do have a strong farm system, they're now facing two really scary teams in the NOS. It's not just the Dodgers and everyone else. It's now the Dodgers and the Padres and everyone else. And that could continue to be the case for, who knows, a decade at this point. It doesn't seem like there's a foreseeable time when either of those teams will be bad again. So it's sort of a a tough challenge for them. The Goldschmidt trade is a a perfect summation because... Like you said, Ben, last year, Luke Weaver and Carson Kelly combined were better than Paul Goldschmidt. But this year, Weaver has an ERA of 8.23 and Carson Kelly is hitting 194. Meanwhile, Paul Goldschmidt is leading the majors with a 495 on base percentage. So talk about a reversal. Yeah, I'm it. That's that's why I sort of find this team sort of so hard to pin down is so many of these players were good last year. Good. And it's not just those guys like Eduardo Escobar and and Jake Lamb and some of the, um, uh, some, some of the other, you know, Ray was 
always talented but volatile looking even when he was pitching really well a couple years ago um i'm i just don't understand why this team isn't better just based on the the names that that they have on the roster i do want to push back a little bit and i don't think this was exactly the point you were making where uh the dodgers and the padres are going to make that division really tough i just I don't think that that's a good enough excuse. I think that you have to try to wait. Like you can't just wait out until Tatis or Gavin Lux or Walker Bueller hits free agency. Cause we saw yeah, for how long did the, did the Rays make a, a, a go of it while the Yankees and Red Sox were trading the AL pennant and the Blue Jays and Orioles were just sort of floating along aimlessly behind them. And it, or sometimes it was the Orioles going, uh, going for third place and sometimes knocking off one of those teams where the Rays weren't weren't that good. I just, this is just sort of, it's the luck of the draw, and some divisions are stronger than others. And unfortunately for a Diamondbacks team that has a lot of interesting players, a lot of easy guys to root for, uh, this is the the hand they've been dealt geographically. And so it's, uh, you know, it sucks, but they've got to find a way around it in the in the medium term. I just don't, I, it's just, it it's not good enough to, to just say, well, the division's hard, so we're just going to wait. And I think that's that's particularly true now that there are eight playoff teams, at least for this season. And Zach, you promised takes, and it's not every day that like you are the I, I, you're very even keeled. As much as I think all three of us tend to to try to maintain an even strain and be very rational about this, but Zach, you are you, it's hot under your collar right now. You told us so. I'm gonna cede the floor to you, and you're gonna cut a promo on the, the 16 team <laughs> playoff structure. So I just think that while I understand the reasons for the 16-team playoff this year uh, to add more playoff games, to get extra TV revenue, to avoid overly penalizing teams that have suffered injuries in a shortened season, I understand those reasons. But I think it sucks. I think if you look at the American League right now, there are currently, according to the Fangraphs playoff odds, seven teams with better than a 95% playoff chance and six teams with a playoff chance below 5%. And if you remember your high school statistics class, a p-value of 0.05 or less means there's a statistical significance <laughs> here. I learned that in grad school. So, <laughs> so regardless... That means we basically have two teams fighting for one playoff spot, and that's it. And there is a month left of the season, and of course, it's a 60-game season, so that means there's half the season left, and we already know for 13 of the 15 teams whether they will be in the playoffs or not in the playoffs. Furthermore, for the American League, you would think, oh, maybe winning the division matters. Maybe you want a better seed or home field advantage. That doesn't matter this year because, first, there are no fans. Second, there probably won't even be home field advantage if the playoff bubble arises. So then it doesn't really matter whether you're seated first, second, third, fourth, etc. all down the line. And I think if you look at these teams, there would be such a fun battle down the stretch if Let's say the Rays and the Athletics are in the playoffs right now because they uh, have a pretty decent cushion given how many games are left. But then you would have the Yankees, the Blue Jays, the White Sox, the Twins, Cleveland, Houston, all six of those teams fighting for three playoff spots. And that would be extraordinarily fun. A team like the Yankees, which, yes, has suffered a lot of injuries, doesn't really need to worry about those injuries because right now they have a 98.6% chance of making the playoffs. So they didn't make any trades at the deadline or any upgrades to the major league roster, at least. They exchanged some minor league depth pieces. 
But that's because they know, okay, Aaron Judge will be back before the playoffs. Giancarlo Stanton will be back before the playoffs. So we don't need to worry about making those upgrades in season because we're not worried about falling out of the playoffs. And whether we catch Tampa for the division title or not, it doesn't really affect our playoff chances that much. So yes, those best of three playoff series in the first round will be extraordinarily fun. Uh, The second day, we will have eight winner go home playoff games. The third day, we will have a lot of sudden death playoff games. But just because you're building to three fun days doesn't mean you should compromise a whole month of excitement. And I think that's what you're getting in the American League right now. The National League is a bit more exciting because basically the Dodgers and Padres are the only teams running away with this. So you do have a little more turmoil. Only the Pirates and maybe the Diamondbacks are out right now. But I think it would still be a lot more exciting if there were only five teams playing for the playoff spot, because if you're a team like the Cardinals right now, which are playing double headers every other day, as long as you split those double headers, if you just go one and one and shoot for a 30 and 30 record at the end of the season, you're going to make the playoffs. And I think there's just a lot less tension, a lot less excitement. You look at a team like the Reds, just to name another example, they are currently one of the worst teams in the National League. But because of their pitching with Castillo and Gray and Bauer, they could easily pull an upset in the first round of the playoffs. That is exciting, but I think it'll be pretty underwhelming if the you know 27 and 33 Cincinnati Reds upset the Dodgers in the first round. I think that would be a pretty big bummer. And a team like the Marlins, it would be exciting if they got in, but they're really the only true underdog. I think every other team in the National League right now Maybe the Giants, you could argue, are an underdog, but it's not like we're going to have that many Cinderella stories either if you're hoping that we get a March Madness vibe here. So I think it just stinks, and I understand why they're doing it this year. I wish they weren't, and I certainly hope they don't in the future because you're just removing a lot of the fun of a good pennant race. Yeah, I think that whether you get a better race or a worse race with one format or another, that can vary by the season, just depending on how the standings shape up. But I agree totally with the general point, which is that this does sort of disincentivize trying to build the best team possible. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the Padres were so active because they are sort of in the sweet spot this season where it really makes sense for them to upgrade at the deadline because they're a team that's, you know, in what would have been wild card position. And in the past, they might have been facing a, a 50-50 coin flip game. Now they don't have to do that. They get more playoff games. And I think they're probably better than their potential opponents. And so there is reason for them to get better. It might actually improve their World Series odds somewhat significantly if they improve their team at the trade deadline. But there are a lot of other teams that were not in that position and just, you know, either their fate was sort of set, whether it's missing the playoffs or making the playoffs or just winning the division. If you're going to win the division, then there's just really no point to getting better because at that point, you're just even less assured of advancing in the playoffs because there's an extra round now, another opponent to go through. And granted, a division-leading team, maybe they've done their building already. Maybe they've signed people, traded for people over the offseason, and they're already set. But I do think that, in general, Zach is right. And I think there's a, a secondary reason, which maybe for me is even more important, not to like the expanded playoff format, which is just the way that it shifts the emphasis from the regular season to the playoffs. And I think MLB just sort of has to pick a lane one way or another. I mean, if they want the regular season to mean something, if they want us to actually be glued to a six-month season with 162 games, if they want that to decide the best teams and have them play each other, great, that's fine, I'll, I'll watch that. 
but I don't think you can make us sit through a six-month, 162-game season and then have a free-for-all for another month with more than half of those teams where everything's basically random. I mean, do you want the random excitement of the playoffs or do you want the determining the best team over a six-month slug? I think you can have one or the other, but if you have both, I'm just not going to pay that much attention to the regular season because ultimately most decent teams are going to make it and everything's going to be decided in October anyway. Yeah, as much as we complained about the stratification of baseball, how we've we've had 300 win teams and 300 loss teams at least in the past couple seasons, I want to see that if the teams that win 100 games were smart enough and committed enough and, and invest enough financially, I want to see them get rewarded with something better than home field advantage in a best of three series, or which isn't even going to happen. And this year, I don't give a damn about this year. Like this, <laughs> this is all fake. This is all weird. Just I, who, who cares? I, I think whoever, whichever team wins the world series ought to, ought to treat it like the biggest, like this is the toughest world series that has ever been won. And everybody else should just shrug and, and, whatever but uh eliminating that advantage and ben i i think you pretty much covered this we don't want to disincentivize teams from spending money to go from good to great and i think that that's that's a huge risk particularly if every first round series is a uh, a best of three the other thing i want to add to that in terms of devaluing the regular season part of baseball's charm is that it is quotidian. It's not an event. Every regular season game is not an event like it is in football. That it's just there for you all the time. But one of the biggest complaints about basketball and hockey is the playoffs are awesome and the regular season is too long. And they both have 16-team playoff structures with regular seasons that are interminable with shorter games and half as many of them as there are in baseball. And I just can't imagine knowing that your team is going to make the playoffs in 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 March or not in March when does the season even start <laughs> knowing your team is going to make the playoffs in like mid May and waiting around for like 4 months when the the incentive to be that 100 win team or play to the bubble is not really that great um i just we underestimate how boring that could become and i think the financial incentives for creating that kind of action packed bonanza in the playoffs for adding gate for adding a playoff gate without expanding player salaries is so overwhelmingly like short-sighted business school thinking that it's so obvious that MLB is going to try to to keep this playoff structure in place and who's going to stop them the, the networks the players the, the networks want more money just as much as the owners do and the players all want a chance to to play for that hunk of metal as Rob Manfred called it and so there's no it's going to I think it expanding to 16 teams would be obviously bad for the sport and nobody in a position to stop it has the has an incentive not to do it and i think this trade deadline as ben alluded to is a perfect example if you look at those american league kind of teams that would be on the bubble but are now safely ensconced inside it basically none of them made any moves the yankees didn't add anybody the white Sox only added Gerard Dyson, who probably is not a difference maker. Cleveland subtracted Mike Clevenger. Minnesota didn't add anyone. Houston didn't add anyone. And I think if this were still a normal playoff structure, they would have a team like Houston, which has suffered Herculean uh, pitching injuries, would have probably added some pitchers. The White Sox, trying to make their first postseason since 2008, would have added some pitchers. And I know they were rumored for guys like Lynn and Bundy. Maybe they would have 
added that extra prospect for Lance Lynn if their their status in this year's postseason were not secure yet. And I think that would be exciting. Uh, a team like the Blue Jays added people, but that's because they're the one team that actually has reason for concern with the Tigers creeping up. So I think you see this exact example playing out as we predicted in the AL trade picture this season. And I would expect that to continue in, in future deadlines if we have expanded postseason fields. When we talk about big boys, Lance, imagining Lance Lynn on the roster with Lou Bob and Giolito and Aloy Jimenez, we will find out if pinstripes are slimming. If, uh, <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink. With seven rewards, it's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax. Participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms. All rights reserved. Okay, we're going a little bit long, so let's uh, go to the unnamed playoff odds segment. And uh, you didn't sing ben, it. Were you the unnamed playoff odds segment? No instrument. Did, no kazoo. Uh, maybe you'll break it up a little later. <laughs> I I sat down and we started recording and realized my slide whistle was all the way across the room. So that's on me. Uh, I'm still recovering from a busy trade deadline. Uh, one th- other thing I'm recovering from, Ben, were you the one who put the the numbers in the rundown? Yes. Are you sure you got this right? The Phillies are the biggest mover in a I positive direction? Believe that's true. Yeah, believe it. Plus 25.7% <laughs> in the past seven days. Phillies are a winning team right now, 16 and 15. Uh, so this is getting uh, a lot of play on, on Phillies Twitter, and I won't belabor this, but the one... Th- I do like the the Phillies Nationals rivalry, even though I don't think it's the it's even close to the most ferocious in the the division because the Nationals came came of age as a as a team in Washington when the Phillies were dominating the division, and there's that sort of regional little brother complex that they seem to not really be over, 
And so before uh, the Phillies and Nats played last week, since the last time we talked, they uh, the Nationals social media team released a, a graphic uh, about how they're, they're one game over 500 all time against the Phillies. And the, the caption was, beating Philadelphia isn't as hard as Philadelphians say it is. Which, first of all, if you talk to any Philly sports fans, they all hate their teams and think that their teams <laughs> suck. They, they Philadelphians will say beating Philadelphia is extremely easy. But since then, it, and Corey Simon of N, uh, NBC Philly did the, the math on this, the Nationals have gone 0-4 against the Phillies and were outscored 25-11. to um, That seems to have tipped the balance of power in, in the race for those latter uh, wildcard spots in, in the NL East. So I'm going to enjoy this while it lasts because I fully expect to be breaking the slide whistle out and playing the sad noise for the, the Phillies by this time next week. Yeah, the Nationals at 12 and 21 now have the second worst record in the National League. Only the Pirates have been worse. It has been a, a swift fall from yeah. a championship for them. I, I actually had this exact conversation with a, a good friend of mine who's a Nats fan. And I said, if any team has ever does has ever earned a play, a World Series hangover, it's oh, the yeah. Nationals. There's a grace period for sure. Yeah, no, like who cares? <laughs> it's a first, <laughs> you know, it's a first title in franchise history. Seeing what every everything that's um that's gone on societally, you know, Strasburg's hurt. You're still getting great performances from Trey Turner. Trey Turner's been unbelievable the past couple of weeks. Uh, Juan Soto, like whatever, just bundle it back up. Everybody, everybody who's who's uh, important to that team is uh, under contract for next year. So just run it back. Forget this ever happened. Uh, as much as the rest of us would like to forget 2020 happened, the, the Nationals can probably actually do that. <laughs> right. So the next two teams on the climbers list this week, we have the Tigers at plus 20 percentage points. Just when we counted them out, we sort of wrote off the Tigers after their run at contention. Well, they're back in the playoff picture. They're a winning team again. And then you have the Chaos Giants who are up about 13 percentage points and seemingly can't be beaten. So I don't know what to make of either of these teams, but I'm kind of glad they're still in the mix. On the other end of the spectrum, the biggest faller is the New York Mets. As the Phillies have risen, the Mets have fallen. And uh, sorry to Bobby, but the Mets season, I think, can be summed up with one of the ways that they lost a game to the Yankees over the weekend. It was a doubleheader, so a seven-inning game. They were up 7-2, to two, two outs in the seventh, and ended up losing that game. They also lost the second game of that doubleheader. and. Just yikes. Edwin Diaz had to come in after some iffy defense and some luck uh, got runners on base. Edwin Diaz comes in, throws a wild pitch and gives up a game tying home run to Aaron Hicks. So I think exactly what happened last season to the Mets is happening again this season to the Mets. Uh, Diaz as Hicks's home run just snuck into the first row of the right field bleachers kind of laughed on the mound because what else can you do at this point? But Mets fans aren't laughing is the impression I get online. Yeah, I, that was a very long winded way of saying womp womp because <laughs> that's how I'd sum up the the Mets between now and next week. I'm going to learn how to play the trombone just in case uh, we come back to the Mets. Um, yeah, it's a bummer uh, and good news. It seems like a real stand up guy is in in uh, in line to buy the team. Uh, I don't want to belabor this because I think the the barbecue boys. Uh, covered this um on monday show so we'll uh we'll move on to the next 
No, let's not actually, because the Rockies are the next next team on the list, and I I'm just sad. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about that. The fourth place Colorado Rockies does <laughs> oh, kind of no. sound like the first place Colorado Rockies. <laughs> yeah, that bit was fun while it lasted. I mean, that's why I went in so hard on the bit is because it was fun and I knew it wasn't going to last that long. Um, still on the playoff bubble though, because of so. I guess there's your silver lining to the uh, to the 16 team playoff structure. Yeah, the Rockies are still trying. <laughs> They're still upgrading. They still that made some moves. That so patronizing, Ben. That's, <laughs> that's very unkind what you just did. Well, in comparison to, say, the Brewers, the, the Brewers, the Rockies, and the Nats are all down about 12 percentage points since we last spoke. And the Brewers basically didn't do anything, didn't try to upgrade at the deadline. And the Nationals, we just covered. The Rockies still making moves, trying to plug some holes, but probably too little too late. There have been a lot of really strange uh, closer meltdowns I've watched over the last week. And I think the Brewers are another example of that where uh, they were playing against the Pirates on Saturday and Josh Hader blew a lead because he walked five batters in uh, the ninth inning, except then the, the Brewers won anyway because Richard Rodriguez came in for the Pirates and gave up a walk-off home run to uh, Eric Sogard. So uh, the Brewers won that game. They have not won many other games this last week but before we leave i just want to point out have you looked at josh Hader's stat line yet this year i was just gonna bring that up very strange josh Hader in 10 and two-thirds innings has 10 walks which is not very good but he has not allowed a hit yet uh so he has an era of 1.69 that's pretty good when you don't allow any home runs or hits of any kind so what a strange stat line josh Hader: 10 walks zero hits allowed 17 strikeouts. Is he in danger of of losing the closers role to rookie of the year front runner Devin Williams? <laughs> he should be given their performance, but uh I am kind of hoping that Hater goes the entire season without allowing a hit now. A bab up of zero is pretty cool. Sure. That might as well happen too. All right. <laughs> we're we're out of time for this week. Uh thanks uh, uh thanks for joining me, Zach. Until next time. And Ben. Thank you. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's show. Uh, thanks to AJ Preller, Kevin Cash, and Tommy LaStella for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.